0: Chats from the Blog Cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode.
1: Chats
2: from the Blog Cabin. Welcome to a brand new episode.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin, um, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin and we chat about life. I'm Melissa. You know who I am. And today we're chatting all about veterinarians and the stress they go under in, in their profession. And I'm joined by Sandy Weaver, the author of Happy Vet, Happy Pet. Sandy, welcome to the show. Before we get chatting about the book, kind of tell us who, why you decided to do this, who you are, and just basically anything and everything you want to share with us about yourself.
0: Okay. So I'm a dog lover from way back. Um, Grew up with small dogs because my dad was in the military and we moved a lot. And I always wanted a Siberian Husky. And dad said, whenever you have a place of your own, you can have any kind of dog you want. So I got my first Siberian in 1979 and got started in dog sports shortly after I got Alex. And have been part of American Kennel Club dog sports. So that's like Westminster Kennel Club dog show. Mm-hmm. If you see that on television, it's that kind of thing, but it's also the agility, the obedience, the rally obedience, the dancing with your dog, the scent work, the barn hunt, it's everything. So I, I have really active dogs. So I've had a really close relationship with my veterinarians through the years. And it's always been anecdotally known that veterinarians seemed to have a high rate of suicide. And it was something that the veterinarians whispered about amongst themselves, but nobody ever really studied it until the CDC did. And when their report came out in 2019 about the extent of veterinary suicide, and they did a very comprehensive study on 30, 38 years, I believe, 38 years span of every veterinary death and found that nearly four times was the number. Veterinarians are nearly four times more likely to complete a suicide than the general population. That is an extreme amount of pain and stress. And so I took my company and I morphed it into, instead of kind of working on coping skills and happiness challenges and success um, strategies for just anybody who wanted them, I just morphed it into working with veterinarians. I focused on them because clearly they need help. And I looked at what was around, and my business included, made it like veterinarians were expected to fix themselves. You know, they had to do all the work. And I started looking at my history with dog sports and realized that since 75% of veterinary suicides are in the small animal practices, that says that we as clients are doing something wrong. We're contributing in a pretty big way. And I started looking for books that I could add to my, my suggested reading for my dog friends. And it's like, here, here's a problem. Here's how we need, we need to fix it. The book didn't exist. So I said, well, okay, I'll write it. So that's where Happy Vet, Happy Pet, Caring for Your Pets Caregiver came from. It's it. Uh, I did a big study with veterinarians, did a lot of interviews, did a lot of um, surveys and asked them to fill out surveys worked with not one more vet which is an amazing organization of veterinarians helping veterinarians in crisis and my company pledges uh, that a portion of every sale goes to not one more vet they are they really do amazing work in in interventions because here's the here's the secret i mean there are some people and while we talk about suicide today, there are some people who have very strongly held faith beliefs about suicide. And, Mm -hmm. and I would like you to, to please suspend the right and wrongness. And think about the pain that you yourself would have to be in Mm -hmm. for you to even think about ending your own life. That's a lot of pain. Nobody really wants to do it, they just don't see a way out. So I wrote this book to help people understand who their vet is at a really deep level, and how we contribute to the problem of veterinary suicide, how we can stop doing it, and how we can help somebody if we happen to, in any part of our life, run into somebody and our little spidey tingling sense goes off and says, wow, I wonder if they're really that desperate. It's really easy to help. And so there's a whole chapter on here's what to do if you ever have that feeling because you will not put thoughts in their head. The thought is already there and Mm -hmm. you picked up on it.
1: Yeah. i one of the things that really stood out because I hadn't even really thought about it when I was reading this book is that yeah, they have veterinarians have unusual circumstances here. They are falling in love with their own. If you're an animal lover and they fall in love with all these animals and they come in and the pet owners by no fault of their own, by no means have to choose between a really expensive procedure are putting their pet down and they normally because there's so much expenses involved putting the pet down and you know the doctor just wants to help the vet just wants to be there to help their the loved ones because it's part of the family no matter anybody that has an animal it's part of their family unless it's unless it's on the farm somewhere yeah. yeah so i never even thought it thought about that i mean honestly what vets must go through because you know normally it's it's tough on us to put an, an animal down but Think about what they do in a normal course of the day. How many are normal course month or the year, how many animals they have to put down because there's no other way.
0: Right. And, and they feel like, in a lot of cases, and just on a normal euthanasia, normal euthanasia, let's just say I had a 15 year old that I had to put down earlier this year. I was hoping she would go to sleep and not wake up. Mm -hmm. Um, Alas, she did not do that. So I had to take her in and have her put down and, It is a kindness, it is a really nice thing. It's a gift to be able to give that animal. And it's still hard and it's hard for the pet owner. And it's also hard for the veterinarian, but the veterinarian understands here that it's a gift that they're giving the animal. And then they have to try to compartmentalize that to keep it away from here where they know that maybe if the client had been able to afford treatment then they wouldn't have had to put the animal down so soon. A piece of life is that we all die. Every living thing will die. And yet medical doctors, our doctors, Mm -hmm. don't deal with it nearly as often as veterinarians do, because our lifespans are a lot longer. So there's a big difference right there. And I'm a citizen scientist in neuroplasticity. So another thing that's in the book is, an explanation of a who the veterinarians are mm-hmm. at a really deep personal level but how they come to understand for themselves that euthanasia is an end to pain and suffering they on an average of twice a week counsel their clients that you know when the time comes and your pet is in pain or maybe they're presented with an animal that's really in dire straits and there is no hope that euthanasia is an end to pain and suffering and it is a gift that you give to someone that you love so when a veterinarian who tends to be very driven very focused very perfectionist about themselves Mm -hmm. not about anybody else about themselves they expect perfection from themselves they expect to get it right every time and they have a very hard time asking for help that combination tends to box you into a corner if that's who you are you can get into a situation where you're stuck in a corner and you feel like you don't have a way out and when this has piled onto this has piled onto this and has piled onto this the way their brain the way our brain works is the more often you say something the more likely you are to believe that it's empirically true Mm -hmm. and it's perfectly fine when a veterinarian believes that it's empirically true that ending a life humanely is a gift when they're thinking and talking about an animal. But when they start having that thought about themselves and believing it, mm. there are very few veterinary suicide attempts because veterinarians may feel like imposters and they feel like may feel like they're not good enough and they may feel like they don't get things right there are very few veterinary suicide attempts. They are experts. They know how to do it. And if they've convinced themselves that it's the only way out and it's a gift that you can give someone to end the pain and suffering, I I fear that is a big piece of the veterinary suicide problem.
1: That was one of the points I was talking about. They're not likely to attempt suicide, they're more likely to complete suicide. Exactly, and so, thank
0: you for saying complete. And for people who have not come across this, It's it's been in our vernacular that we say somebody committed suicide. And that comes from the roots of the idea of ending your own life as a, as a biblical crime, as a crime against God. And so you commit a crime. Well, we commit crimes. People, it's not a crime to have so much pain in your life that you think that the only way out is to kill yourself. So a, a kinder word is complete suicide. It's a more accurate word because they're not committing a crime. They're, they, are, they, are, they are completing what feels like the only thing they can do for themselves. And the cool news is there's a whole chapter in this book to tell us how easy it is to help somebody not take that step. It's not hard to do.
1: So let's talk about compassion fatigue. What is compassion fatigue? You mention it in the book. Compassion fatigue is where
0: veterinarians all day long deal with the pain of their clients and so specifically, in a, in a situation where the client does not have pet insurance, and may I just put in a word for pet insurance here, I don't care what kind you buy. Do your research, ask your veterinarian what kind they most of their clients have the best luck with, and they can give you a couple of recommendations. Get pet insurance, because as veterinary care gets more sophisticated, then veterinary cost care, care cost gets higher.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: if you have pet insurance, you will not get to the point of not being able to afford the treatment that can save your pet's life. That can also assist in saving your veterinarian's life because you don't put them in that bad position of having a great treatment protocol and a client that can't afford to pay for it. And veterinarians can't afford to do it for free. Right. They can't. They, they're, Running a vet hospital is exceptionally expensive. So compassion fatigue is that they're dealing with these problems day in and day out. You might have one pet emergency a year. They see three or four pet emergencies a day. And they're, they're dealing with it, they go into high gear, it's adrenaline, sometimes they can save the pets, sometimes they can't, they always want to, they always commiserate with their clients because they, want, they, they feel their client's pain. And at the end of the day, they've got all this angst and they have no place to put it. And that's not just veterinarians. It's also the veterinary technicians, the receptionists, mm-hmm. the kennel help. It's everybody in the veterinary hospital. Everyone who's in a veterinary hospital has an elevated rate of suicide or an elevated chance of, att- of attempting suicide. Veterinarians are just closer to the drug box.
1: Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking, the drug box, because yeah. they have that, like the ones they put in euthanasia for the animals, You know, they have that drug that they can Right, readily access if they're in that state of mind. Yep,
0: and there is a—I I think it's a four eyes where it means the only way that you can get the drug box open is that two people have to be present, and that's a stopgap. But if somebody has decided they're going to end their life, access to the drug box or not is not going to make a difference. They'll find another way. It's—it's a—it might slow them down, so that's a good thing. Um, it's not going to stop them. We we have to be better behaved and and my companies like mine and other companies need to get out there and work with more veterinarians and teach them more coping skills and help them. Manage through the day, help them not be so hard on themselves and help them remember that they can ask for help.
1: Now, why do you think that we don't look at like, obviously, if a doctor had a mental health problem, you would want him to get help right away. Why do you think it's the best? It's because. dealing with animals and people don't think that they need help or why do you think that nobody talks about that
0: well it is being talked about not widely and clients don't know about it uh, for the most part i did an event over the weekend and i talked to probably 300 people individual conversations and two of them had had were aware of the cdc study on veterinary suicide so that's good that's two and by the time i was through talking a lot more people knew it so that was. Good. The reason, are you asking why veterinarians don't get help more often or why we don't know that veterinarians need help?
1: A little bit of both, actually.
0: Okay. I thought I heard a little bit of both. Okay. So, why don't we know is because we think veterinarians have the best job going. They get to play with puppies and kittens all day. And that's true, except that the puppies and kittens are scared. They're afraid to be at the vet. As soon as they smell the disinfectant at the veterinary hospital or hear the sounds or or get into that exam room and somebody picks them up and puts them on the slippery table, they get scared. So yeah, veterinarians are playing with animals all day, but they're not playing. They're trying to calm down a really scared pet so that they can deal with it. They're also having to work out the puzzle because medical doctors can ask questions. Does it hurt when I do this? Does it hurt when you do this? And you can't ask that of pets. They can't answer the question. So the veterinarian has to have, in addition to their medical skills, they've got to have really good sleuthing skills. So when your intro was playing, it was that da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. That kind of music, I'm thinking, oh, that could be veterinary sleuthing music. They're trying to figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> my brain goes in weird places. It's okay. Uh, so, So most of us just kind of take for granted that veterinarians have a great job. We don't even think about it. And we also don't even think about the way we treat veterinarians. A lot of times we are much more transactional with our veterinarians than we would be with our medical doctors. Mm. We don't go in and sit down and say, how much is this going to cost? Well, that's too much. That's highway robbery. I could get it down the street for half that price. Mm-hmm. We do that to our medical doctors, but we do it to our veterinarians very often. And veterinarians have they have an expensive business to run, and it is a business. And they come out of vet school with, on average, between 150 and 500 thousand dollars mm-hmm. in student loan debt. It's a lot of debt that has to be paid off. And there's not, there's not automation in a veterinary hospital. You can automate some things. You can automate running the blood work, but you can't automate the technician who comes in and draws the blood. There has to be a person and people in a business are expensive. So it's very expensive to run a, a hospital. So that's, you know, we there's a little bit of that. And then why don't veterinarians ask for help? Why don't they get the help they need? Because they don't, they feel like they should be able to handle it. They mm-hmm. feel like they should be able to handle it. I can handle this. I can handle this. I just have to put my mind to it. They've been driven since they were between 8 and 12 years old. That's when they decided they would become a veterinarian. It was not a profession they wanted to go into. It was a calling that they had. Mm-hmm. And they've known it since very young age. And they've structured their life to make it happen. And they graduated from school. And now they've got this job they've always dreamed of. and It looks a little different than they imagined, but they feel like, I can handle this. I handled everything else up to here. I can handle this. I can take care of it. I can do this. I don't need any help. And they have a hard time asking for help. So they may not understand quite the level of stress that they're under until they get to the point of boxing themselves in the corner. Mm -hmm. And then they really, unless somebody intervenes, they're going to succeed.
1: Wow. Now, when we come back, so we have to take a brief commercial break. I would love for you to read part of your
2: book when we come back. Okay. Do you feel betrayed by life, your body, or by someone that you love? You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years i lost everything that day my identity my worth and the future i had worked so hard to create while it was a long and arduous journey back to myself today i know who i am what i want and i am happier and more confident than i ever was before i've got what i call naked self-worth which is the ability to see know and love yourself for who you are, not for what you accomplished or for who you are in relation to others. No matter what has shattered your heart, if you're ready to get clear on who you are, what you want, and to learn how good life really can be, then life choreography is for you. Even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything. Life Choreography is a comprehensive five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts, and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to NakedSelfWorth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past. Reclaim your sexy and start re choreographing life on your own terms so you can love and be loved for exactly who you most authentically are.
1: And we are back chatting with author Sandy Weaver. She wrote the book Happy Vet, Happy Pet. And Sandy, before we went to break, I asked you if you would read a part of your book. So, how about it?
0: Thank you, Melissa. Uh, One of the things that we talked about earlier was that I did a lot of interviewing veterinarians and surveying veterinarians before I started writing this book because I wanted to make sure that I understood who they were and read all the studies about who everybody else found that they were, but I wanted it for myself. And the data was so compelling that I decided to create a composite veterinarian. And so the first chapter of the book is a day in her life. I'm gonna read you part of her life. Dr. Smith sat at her desk, arranging the piles of paper into neat stacks that might make sense tomorrow morning. Sitting there, she realized her shoulders were tense and her jaw was clenched. She wondered how long that had been going on as she tried to relax her shoulders down to where they were supposed to be. Celia, what was she going to say to her receptionist? That question had been nagging at her all day. How could she have a conversation about Celia's irritability with staff and clients, and at the same time, find a reasonable way to ask how the sink managed to yank itself off the wall and fling itself onto the floor? It felt like that needed to be two conversations, neither of which Dr. Smith felt up to having today. And yet the longer she waited, the harder the conversation would be. For the hundredth time, at least, Dr. Smith found herself fantasizing about being able to offer to hire a hospital manager. Maybe she'd float that idea again tonight with her husband once he finally got home from the dealership. And only if he was in a good mood. Dr. Smith gathered up her things and headed to the front door. Celia was on the phone and Dr. Smith was secretly relieved. No conversations tonight. She thought, Maybe she'd bring enough lunch for both of them tomorrow and invite Celia into her office to eat and chat. That might work, as long as tomorrow didn't explode like today did. On the way home, Dr. Smith went through the drive-thru for dinner. She hated herself for doing this. It felt like she was a failure as a mother feeding her children this way. And yet she didn't know what was in the kitchen that could be whipped up with minimal effort, and she was drained. Done not cooking, maybe not even eating. She'd get planning for the four of them and let the kids eat what they wanted. Then she'd see if her husband was hungry when he got home. And if so, she'd warm up the other two meals for them and maybe eat a few bites. The bottle of wine in the refrigerator was calling her name. While her kids ate, she would catch up with them while trying to unwind from her day. After her kids were fed, helped with their homework, and tucked into their bedrooms, if not their actual beds, Dr. Smith plopped down on the couch, wine glass in hand. Scrolling through her phone as she waited for her husband to come home, she saw an email from the owner of the anorexic cat asking how much food to give him. It came through the hospital email account hours ago, not her personal one. And at this time of night, it was too late to usefully answer that question. She felt like she'd failed that client, at least a little bit, and made a mental note to call her in the morning before she started seeing clients. Her husband came in excited about making his monthly quota just 10 days into the month. Dr. Smith was happy that one of them had had a good day. She'd let him tell her all about the turnaround a difficult saleswoman had made while they ate fast food and drank the rest of the wine and then together cleaned up the kitchen, readied the coffee pot for the next morning, and then both plopped on the couch. Somehow the hospital manager topic didn't get brought up. Dr. Smith thought about bringing it up and she knew what her husband would say. Even though he'd had a great day, their budget was still tight and unlikely to improve very much until they could get the student loans paid off or until there were enough clients in the hospital to pay for an associate vet. Both of those eventualities felt eons away, especially after the day she'd had and the day she was dreading already. Tomorrow, she had to make herself have a difficult conversation with Celia over lunch, which she hadn't made yet for her or for her kids. She thought about other veterinarians and wondered if they struggled with days like this. She wondered if they ever felt like a bad parent or like they'd let a client down, or like they'd never be able to make enough money to dig themselves out of debt so they'd finally be able to add to their hospital staff so they could grow. She wondered how they coped with difficult clients and difficult staff members and difficult contractors. She wondered whether she'd sleep tonight or if it would be another night of waking up at 3 a.m., mind racing over everything she did wrong the day before and that she might do wrong that coming day. And she wondered how she could ever have been so wrong about what being a veterinarian really meant.
1: Wow. I love how you created that composite vet. That was one of the questions that I remember how I told you right before I had like a, a whole list before we yep. came on. That yep. was actually one of the, about the creation of Dr. Smith in your book, because it's basically everything that, vets may deal with in a normal day, but you just threw it all in together. So. Yes.
0: And the stories, now the, the, the sink being somehow pulled off the wall by the receptionist who was not owning it, but was looking very guilty all day, mm-hmm. uh, that actually was a true story. But it only happened to one, at one veterinary hospital. That didn't happen at multiple ones. Most of the rest of what's in that first chapter, I... Things and thoughts that I heard over and over and over again in my interviews and surveys. So it just making a composite veterinarian called Dr. Smith was pretty easy to do because all the material was right there. It's just let it pour out into one person. So I got to know, how did the sink get off the wall? Uh, The receptionist leaned on it. She was trying to last minute put on her makeup, which she didn't take time to do before she got before she left and she was a little on the chunky side or a lot on the chunky side and just put a little too much pressure on it and it it pulled right out of the wall pulled part of the drywall out Mm. broke the pipes so the hot water and the cold water are spewing all over the place and so the hospital was out with was without easy for me to say was without water for a lot of the day a big part of the day. And they lost a lot of revenue, plus had to pay a contractor who was a pain in the butt. And yeah, it was that that whole story was true. I didn't actually fill out because in that day, the doctor did not find out. So I didn't exactly tell the story of how the sink came out of the wall, but that's what happened.
1: Wow. So let's talk about people that think they're going into people think that people that are vets, they are rich, but they're not because they have to do the overhead on, if they own their own practice, overhead on the practice, uh, that's got to be really expensive, especially if you own the building, you don't rent the building. So let's talk about that, that misconception.
0: Okay, well, let's start with what a veterinarian makes when they're in their first year out of vet school. They have as much medical training as our doctors do. And our doctors, their first year out of med school, earn on average $181,000 a year. I'm sorry, $180,000 a year. On average, veterinarians earn $91,000 a year. So their, their student loan debt tends to be a little higher than medical doctors, and they earn half of what medical doctors do on average when they first come out of med school. So that financial pressure right there is incredibly high. Then you have to deal with if they, go into practice for themselves, which has been the dream of many of them. So they go into practice for themselves. They have to either buy a building or lease a building. Either one is very expensive. When you get the building, it's not set up as a veterinary hospital unless it was before. So you've got to go in and outfit it. You need exam rooms. They all have to have water and sinks in them. So if if you buy a house in an area where it's changing from residential to commercial, which is pretty common uh, as an early veterinary setup, Each one of the bedrooms can be an exam room, but they don't all have sinks in them. So you've Mm -hmm. got to retrofit and put sinks in them. You've got to um, upgrade the floor because the exam tables are heavy. So you've got to heavy up the floor's beams and make sure that they can handle the weight. You've got to do a little bit of soundproofing because you're gonna have clients who are very upset and you don't necessarily want the doctor and the client having a conversation that can be heard all over the hospital mm-hmm. and in most buildings that's what happens so a lot of retrofitting that's very expensive then as I mentioned before there's not a machine that can hold down your pet and take their blood that mm-hmm. is a human being and when you start hiring humans then you're paying not just their salary but you're paying for their benefits and you're paying for their uh the taxes that you have to you know that your half of their social security you're paying for all kinds of things and they get hurt, you've got to stay compliant with OSHA rules and regulations, you've got to carry um, errors and omissions insurance not only on you for malpractice, but you've got to carry a huge level of insurance in case your people get hurt. Because guess what? All those puppies and kittens come in very scared and they bite and scratch and cause medical issues and sometimes very bad medical issues. My veterinarian's associate vet got bitten in the face one day. Mm-hmm. and That's just, you know, that can take a while and a lot of money to fix. Plus there's the equipment. They probably need an x-ray machine. They probably need to be able to do blood work in house. Um, they, they, They might need an ultrasound machine they probably need to be able to oxygenate. And if they're gonna do surgery, then they need to be able to have the surgery suite. So they have to have a surgery table, which means they have to have an autoclave to clean all their surgery packs. And they've gotta have several different sets of surgical instruments, depending on the kind of surgery they're doing, several different sets so that they can have a clean set ready to go while they're sterilizing another set. Mm -hmm. And then the anesthesia machine and the oxygen machine. So yeah, it's expensive to run a hospital. So, if you go going that route, that's a lot of expense. Mm-hmm. Veterinarians find that they're often paying themselves last with whatever's left over after they've paid for everything else until they build their practice up. And then, if they decide, well, I'll just go be an associate vet somewhere, there that's the ninety one thousand dollars. I mean, that's that's the reality. that's you're not getting a whole bunch. The benefits are getting better. There is a company that has decided that when they bring, an associate vet in, the longer they work, the more um, the company will pay towards their student loan debt. So part of their benefit is getting their student loans paid off. That's a big established veterinary hospital management company. So it owns hospitals all around the country. And I think that is a fabulous benefit and is going a long way to helping vets feel a a lot better about the financial stress, at least.
1: Yeah, because you got to figure out You've We already talked about in the beginning the emotional stress they're under with seeing uh, they have a great plan, but the owners can't afford the plan, so they choose to euthanize their pets. And then you're talking about if you decide to go and own your own practice, then that financial stress just topples on top of the emotional stress, and it's like a downward spiral that they can't seem to get out of. Exactly.
0: And as you heard, Dr. Smith is not alone in having to worry about how she's gonna handle a difficult um, coworker and deal with somebody who is, um, you didn't hear the whole chapter, but Celia is not the world's greatest receptionist. Celia is a little crabby with clients who wanna ask questions and, um, and when she's juggling two or three phone calls, which a great receptionist always has to do, especially in COVID times, because with you know, there's a lot more phone interaction. So she needs to be very even keeled and Celia, bless her heart, is not. And so Celia's crabby, Celia likes to stir the pot a little bit. She's a little passive aggressive. And so it's hard to have a difficult conversation with a person like that anyway. So there are a lot of Celias that are also drawn to the, med- med- to the veter- veterinary field. And so vets have to deal with that too. Even if they don't own the practice, As the veterinarian, they're often, if there's not a hospital manager, they are the most senior person in the building. So if there's a spat going on, they're often the person that's expected to referee it. And they didn't go to school for that. And they don't want to do it. They'd rather hide in their office under their desk until the argument goes away. (coughs) They don't want to do that.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. Because in most medical practices, you have that office manager that that handles everything, the billing and everything else. But then veterinarian practices, you normally don't have that.
0: You do when it's multiple vets in there. There's typically an office manager. When it's a one vet practice, most of the time, if that vet owns the practice, they're wearing all the hats. They're like every other solopreneur on the planet. You know, I have to be the business manager, I have to be the marketing director, I have to be the veterinarian, I have to be the referee, I have to, you know, be the personnel manager and the HR person and and yeah, and and the accountant, oh, by the way, yes, and I have to run payroll. <laughs> I couldn't imagine all those stresses. I would not be able to do that. So I don't know how a veterinarian does it, especially since most of it, they don't want to do. They want to help animals, period, paragraph.
1: And then you have to add in the fact that they're having to see patients on top of that. So their work weeks, I, I can imagine physical exhaustion, exhaustion yes. as well falls into that whole little mindset of... Uh, that downward spiral. Exactly.
0: So when you get tired, you don't make good decisions anyway. There is a thing called decision fatigue. And it actually happens to every single one of us every day of our lives. We make the very best decisions we'll ever make early in the day before we've had to make a lot of decisions. So when somebody says, you know, you don't have to make that decision right now, just sleep on it. What they're actually saying is, you will make a better decision tomorrow morning. So decision fatigue builds up through the day and the more i mean we make tens of thousands of decisions every single day and the later in the day we get the worse our decision making becomes but veterinarians don't have that luxury they have to stay focused and they have to stay in their their mindset of of figuring out a puzzle and working a puzzle and trying to read the body language and the cues of their patients so that they can make the right decisions and Decision fatigue sometimes makes them not make the best decisions, and so they're kicking themselves on the way home because they, they're thinking, oh, I should have thought about that while they were in the office. I could have run that test. Now I have to remember to call them tomorrow. Call the owner tomorrow, and the owner has to come back in, and they're not going to want, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of kicking themselves that goes on because decision fatigue, which is normal, caused them to maybe not make the greatest decision that they could have made.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that really stood out for me when you were writing the book and you were just talking about um, the being the hospital owner with a crisis and then going to having to switch automatically, almost like you're, you walk out of the, the exam room and they're like, Oh, here's a crisis. But then you have to go to an, another exam room and you become the veterinarian with the patient mood. Right. That quick turnaround. They don't have time to decompress or go. Okay give me 10 minutes I go in. No, because then your client's going to, the patients are going to be, the owners are going to be upset with you. So that's
0: right. Yep. You're exactly right that there it's, 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 um, into this room with a puppy and kitten, um, you know, new puppy, new kitten exam. And the, it, you got happy owners and they're, they're very high maintenance because they've, they've never had a pet before. So you get to educate them and you're in that space and that's fun. And you're, you know, seeing the puppy or kitten and trying to help the puppy or kitten have a great experience for their first time at the vet so that they'll be more likely to have good experiences as they get older. Then you leave them, send them out on their way, you move to the next exam room, and you've got a client in there with an ancient dog who's been failing for a while, and they're wondering if today is the day, and if if today is the day, then let's do it right now. And so you you're still in your counselor brain, but it's, you've gone from elation counselor to potential consolation counselor. And you still have to make good decisions and you still have to have your compassionate heart. Your compassionate heart is in a completely different place. And you've got a yo-yo like that all day long. And then, oh, by the way, people like me come flying in with a dog who's got an emergency and just Mm -hmm. called the vet and said, I'm coming in, you know, I got an emergency, I'm coming in, and and I've done that. And that's not good. Um, and it happens all the time. And so vets never really know what their day is gonna be, which for in some ways is really good because they don't like, typically I'm painting with a broad brush, but most veterinarians like the idea of a new challenge and a new challenge and a new challenge. They don't want every day to be exactly the same as the day before. And yet it would be nice if the day could have a semblance of normalcy and not emergency, okay, nice, calm, cool, collected. It's a routine annual emergency, okay. Mm-hmm. Having a surgery, the surgery is going well. Ah, they're tanking. You know, that's yeah. a yo-yo that they are on the string for, and it's just not good for them. It's not good for their mental well-being. It really, it wouldn't be good for anybody's mental well-being. But it's really not good for the veterinarians and who they are.
1: So honestly, part of that should be taking time for self-care, correct? Yes. And that is that's the
0: AVMA has been working with veterinarians, and they've got a huge portion of their website dedicated to mental well-being and helping veterinarians understand what self-care looks like and how important it is. And that is part of what I teach when I go in and work with veterinary teams. And it's, it's also part of you know my online courses. They're right there. It's like, here, take happiness is job one. You'll get some tools, use them all the time. You're in good shape. And yet, that's that's another one of those places where the veterinarian feels like I'm expected to do one more thing when I'm already overwhelmed. So if they're already in the space of overwhelmment, then it needs to fall on us to be better clients. So yes, they can be responsible for their own self-care, but we need to be responsible for caring for them too. It takes a village to help veterinarians be able to cope.
1: Which brings me to my next question, which actually is going to piggyback off a little bit about what, how clients can work with vets. But um, when I was reading the book, I heard words. I read the words that you said people use to describe vets are compassionate, competent, smart, caring, and friendly. But then in exact contrast, how vets describe themselves, imposter, unpopular, exhausted, physically and mentally, dumb, incompetent. So how can, as clients, we help the vet to see their purpose, that they're not imposters, that they're doing the best job that they absolutely positively can be doing for us? Three rules, just
0: three little rules. They're so easy. And and yeah, and as you read the book, Melissa, you know, I tell bad stories on myself about times that I violated rules. So the three rules are very simple. Rule number one is respect everybody in the hospital from the receptionist up to the doctor, hospital manager, person who works in the kennels, the person who takes the anim- the boarding animals for doggy daycare, respect everybody. They are there as part of your pet's care team. They're there because they want to help you and they want to help your pet respect them, and treat them like professionals because that's who they are. So rule number one is very easy, and that's that's respect the people and respect the hospital hours. It's very common for people to see online that the hospital closes at 7 o'clock. So the hospital hours are 7.30 in the morning for drop-off, and the vet starts seeing patients at 9, and the vet office closes at 7 p.m. Well, usually the vet goes home at 5 or 5.30, unless there's more than one vet covering for the day because they can't be there that long. So you can't show up at 6.45 expecting to get your dog's annual exams with no vaccine. I mean, with no appointment. And yet people do it all the time or they come in at five minutes of seven and they want a nail trim and they want a free nail trim and they want somebody when the hospital's already been cleaned and sanitized, they want somebody to you know take care of their dogs. We, we need the nail trim and we need the anal glands expressed. And again, no appointment. So respect the hospital hours, understand that when they're closing at seven, that means when the door locks, they've probably already run their reports for the day. They have probably put their financials to bed for the day. They can't charge you for anything. You can't come and pick up medication because they can't let it leave without being paid for. And they can't charge you because they've already run the day's books. So yeah, Um, respect the hours, but that also means that if you're connected to your veterinarian on social media or you happen to have their cell phone number, which many of us do, because veterinarians care enough about their Mm -hmm. patients that they want to be able to help in an emergency. But that doesn't mean that at two o'clock in the morning when you woke up because Fifi was throwing up and and you wonder, you know, is this something I need to be worried about? Don't call your vet at two o'clock in the morning, they're asleep. And they don't have these chart there, but people, people do it all the time. They call, they, they use a Facebook call, you know, a messenger call, um, because they're connected to their vet on, on social media. They, they, they intrude into their personal life without even thinking about it. I've done it. And without thinking about it, with just thinking, oh, well, well, Dr. Kessel will know. So let me just reach out to Dr. Mm-hmm. Kessel. Maybe I'll text her. No, that's why emergency vet hospitals were invented. If you think it's an emergency, go to the emergency vet. They will have their equipment. They'll be able to take vitals. They won't have to just guess by whatever you're saying on the phone about whether your dog or cat needs to be seen or not. Fifi can either be okay for the night or go to the emergency vet. Don't mess with your your vet during the middle of the night or Saturday afternoon when they might be at their child's soccer game or they might be at a barbecue and have had a couple of cocktails because they're allowed to do that. They're humans too. They're allowed to have a personal life. Don't bother them. Your, your pet's charts are not there and your vet will not remember every detail. So if, if it's an emergency, if you have a question or a problem outside of regular hospital hours, then call an emergency hospital. That's what they're there for. Rule number two is follow the aftercare instructions to the letter. Human beings are really bad about taking our own medication mm-hmm. the way it's supposed to be taken. And we're you know, we were like, okay, I can swallow a pill or, or do whatever. And yet we still don't do it very well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We're worse with our pets. And so that means that A, the pet is not getting the medication that's been prescribed. And B, that means the pet is not getting better. So C, you, the client, are standing between your veterinarian and your pet. Your veterinarian wants to help your pet get better. And you are the impediment because you are not giving the medication. And so then you've got this pet that's not getting better and you're either honest with the veterinarian and saying, you know, I really, I'm having a hard time pilling. And so I can't get the pills down and I haven't probably given them. You know how rare it is for people to be honest. They say, oh yeah, I've given the pills. Yep, 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 she's just getting worse. And so the vet now has a mystery to solve. They have to decide whether you told the truth and your pet really is not responding to the medication, in which case it's more tests. Or if you're not being truthful with them and the pet is not getting the medication, then they have to have a hard conversation with the person who is paying the bills,
2: mm-hmm. you the
0: client, about being non-compliant. That's a hard conversation. So just... Follow the aftercare instructions to the letter. And if you can't give the pills or if you don't understand, call during hospital hours and ask. They want to help you. A technician will get on the phone with you and help you have different ideas of, of how to re- rebandage or how to make the pet take their pills or how to disguise the pills so that the, the pet will actually take them or crush them up and put them in food, whatever the question is and whatever you're having trouble with. The entire hospital staff wants you to succeed. Mm -hmm. So ask them. Ask them for help because they will give it to you. And then rule number three, we are so good at bragging on our vets to our friends about telling our friends what a great vet we have. They're so compassionate, and they're so helpful, and and I just love them so much, and they're so good with Fifi, and yet we don't tell our veterinarians. Mm We just expect they know how awesome they are. Mm -hmm. But Melissa, you read off the list of veterinary Mm self-talk tends to be really negative because these are driven, focused, perfectionist, hard on themselves, can't ask for help. So they, they think. They're an impostor. They think they're going to be found out. That they're not good enough. That they're they're going to get something wrong, and and their their client, their pets will die, and their clients will sue them, and their or, or their clients will sit and cry. You know, they'll break their mm-hmm. client's heart. It may not even be about a lawsuit, but sometimes it is because that happens too, and so they, they're very hard on themselves. Show them how much you appreciate them. Hold that mirror up, and I don't mean a literal mirror. I mean. Mm-hmm. When, you've, when they've made a diagnosis and prescribed some medication and you gave the medication and your pet got better, send them a thank you note. Tell them how much you appreciate mm-hmm. what they did. Uh, I, My 15-year-old dog that I had to take in and have euthanized, thankfully, she did not make my regular vet do it. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, so we went to an emergency vet. And it was the first time that veterinarian and that team had seen this dog. She'd never been to that emergency vet before. And so afterwards I got him a cake and I got him a plant and I wrote him a very nice thank you note. And I told them that I was very sad because I was not capable of saying it that night, but I was very sad that they had not known her in her good times Mm -hmm. because she was a really cool dog. And they did, they gave her a really good gift. You would not, sorry, you would not believe the note that I got back from that veterinarian. It was so sweet. And it was, you could tell he did not get that kind of communication that often. Do that for your veterinarian. Take them a little present now and then, something to eat, something that they can look at. A piece of nature for their office is really nice. So that's why I took a plant in. But sometimes plants have to be in a place where not everybody can see them. So that's why I took a cake in, so everybody could have the cake. And just express your appreciation. If you're on, if you're connected, you know, if you're on Facebook or if you're on LinkedIn and you're connected to their business page, thank them out loud on Facebook, thank them on LinkedIn, tell tell everybody there what a great experience you had. And if somebody bashes your vet on their business page on Facebook, go in and defend them because social media fires are very, very hard on veterinarians, very hard on them. Matter of fact, part of the chapter where it's in the veterinarian's own words is a letter that, an open letter that a veterinarian's husband wrote in defense of her over some clients who were way out of line and very public about being way out of line. And his defense letter actually worked, which was really cool. But yeah, just show them, just tell them, show your appreciation. So it's respect everybody in the hospital and respect the hospital hours, follow the aftercare instructions to the letter and thank them. Tell them thank you. Tell them how awesome they are. Tell them what you think about them instead of letting them just listen to what they think about themselves. That is I so know.
1: true because most of the time when we're talking about bragging on our vets, we're not bragging. Even, even if we're bragging on our children as well, we don't tell them because we think they're going to get a big head. Right. We don't verbally tell them stuff. We just right. kind of say okay i'm going to go brag on them, my friends but they're not going to hear it well right i can see that total change the mindset if they hear from their patients themselves
0: it is necessary for them to hear from them, their patients that if you've ever been into a vet office where the appreciation board is right there in the front in the front of the hospital that's not necessarily for clients to see it's for mm-hmm. the staffer's every time they go through there in and out the front door they can see it And when I work with veterinary teams, I tell them to put that appreciation board someplace where everybody can see it multiple times a day. Not necessarily just the people who are coming in for appointments, you know, once we get to do that again, Um, but but the staffers need to see it. They need to know they're appreciated. They need to know they make a difference, not just in pets' lives, but Mm in people's lives too.
1: You know, that is so true because I can just imagine they already create the bond with the pets when the pets come in to see them often. Like yep. you were saying with your particular one that you had to put down, you were so saddened that they didn't know her and her good times, but your particular pet did know her. Um, so just having that bond, not only with your pet, but with the families of the pet in extension, they become part of the extended family as well.
0: And so when there's a loss, that feeds into that compassion fatigue that we talked about. It's just it's it's it becomes an overload and you can compartmentalize things just so long before those compartments
1: explode. Wow. So we are almost up. So tell people where they can find you at. Oh, gosh, I am.
0: I would say wherever social media games are played, but I really am only in three places. So you can find me on Instagram, Sandy J. Weaver. I'm on Facebook at Sandy J. Weaver and my business page, Center for Workplace Happiness and on LinkedIn at Sandy J. Weaver. So that those are the places that I play. Where do I play the most? Probably on Facebook. And, and so there's that. Um, thank you very much for putting my website up at centerforworkplacehappiness.com. And my crazy Siberian, Casey, has decided that she needs to help veterinarians too. So she's doing videos of Casey's well-being wisdom. And she's a very wise dog for her young years. So she's, she's got the blog on my business page.
1: I love that. Do you write it from her point of view?
0: Oh, no, she just speaks it. Are you kidding me? I don't I don't put any words in her mouth.
1: <laughs> the only reason why I'm saying that is because when I do pet stuff, if you noticed in the intro, we, I had that little shih tzu. Yep. Allie barks her opinion all the time. So,
0: <laughs> yep. No, I do. I write it from Casey's point of view. So Casey, Casey's the one who gets to do the talking, but it's so funny because I, I don't write and I don't write and I don't write and then I get in the mindset to write for Casey and 14 or 15 or 25 of her, you know they're all a minute long or less. And so there's, it's real quick, real fast, real pithy. She usually has a little tiny story to tell about herself and, or me, and, <laughs> and so it's all from her point of view. So sometimes she doesn't have a very nice thing to say about me. And that day she chewed my red shoe up. She didn't really understand why she was in trouble for that because she brought it to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. And the name of your book again?
0: It is Happy Vet, Happy Pet, Caring for Your Pets Caregiver. And it's available on my website if you want autographed copies. But if you just want regular copies or the ebook or the audiobook, you can find it on Amazon and wherever books are sold. It's available everywhere, including the American Kennel Club website. Ah, they put it ah. in their store.
1: Yay. wow that's awesome so one last nugget that you want to leave people with before we leave before we head out
0: veterinarians are there to help our pets don't stand in their way don't be the obstacle
1: i'd love that that is a great last nugget so sandy i want to thank you so much for coming on and being on chats in the blog cabin uh, you're more than welcome to come back on anytime which Brings me to the next question. I forgot to ask you, what's up next for you?
0: Oh, up next um, is a, a, a the first book that I ever wrote is written from my mother's with, with my mother's wisdom. She was amazing. And I wrote a book for my nieces who didn't get, they were very young when she passed away. And so I wrote a book with her wisdom. And then I thought, you know what? This really needs to be a better book than it is. That was my first book and I didn't really know what I was doing. So, I am taking that book and building it out and filling it out with what I've learned about neuroplasticity and neuroscience, positive psychology, and lots of great, it's its lots of great stories anyway, but I'm gonna add even more stories. So I'm not sure what it's gonna be called yet. Um, happy, happy Vet, Happy Pet is not my title. My publishing company hated my title, hated it, and said, come up with something else. And I said, you know what? I love that title. So if you don't think it'll sell, I'm totally bowing to your expertise, come up with what you think will work. So that was their title. Clearly they were correct because it's um, it's done quite well. And so I'm gonna let them title the new one too. The original, <laughs> the, the first book was the original MBA, Succeed Using Mom's Best Advice. And I, I still love that, love it. But if my publishing company doesn't like it, they can come up with something else.
1: I kind of like that because it's kind of MBA mother's best advice. i love that.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I I it was fun. I had fun with it and it's a fun program when I do that one.
1: So I want to thank you again. And when you publish that, let me know and I would love to have you back on and talk about the MBA mother's best advice. Cause that's thank, you you, Melissa.
0: thank you. I love your blog cabin and I love that hat. <laughs> that hat.
1: <laughs> so Sandy, best wishes. Thank you so much for coming on. And guys, we will see you on the next episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. Bye. Chats from the Blog Cabin. Enjoying
0: this episode? Leave a review now.
1: I really want to thank Sandy so much for coming on and talking about um, actually veterinarians and the, the suicide attempts are completed suicide, not suicide attempts because as she heard in the interview that more veterinarians are likely to complete suicide than they are to attempt suicide. So I really want to thank her for coming on and just talking about veterinarians because when you really think about it and i really hadn't thought about it until this particular until i read the book is that they deal with having to put otherwise healthy animals down sometimes um because they can't afford the care their their owners cannot afford the care that they have mapped out and that's gonna be hard especially when they've grown to love a patient and they've seen them through multiple care um situations I know, for instance, when we had to, we were met, trying to make the final decision of whether or not we should put our dog Tutu down. Tutu was one that we've had since she was a baby. And the thought of actually putting her down just, it just killed me. And I prayed every night for God to intervene and just to take her. And I would go out there every day and I would tell her, Tutu, it's okay to let go. It's okay to let go. And she suffered so much, but finally she just let go. But I could not even imagine having to take and saying goodbye and not and having to be the, the person that injects or the person that puts the animal to sleep and never to wake up knowing that they were kind of respecting them. Um, so I want to thank Sandy again so much for coming on. And honestly, guys, if that's one thing that I ask you to do um, is thank your veterinarians. Animals are a huge part of our lives. Um, show your appreciation to them. Tell them that, hey, you know, you're doing an awesome job. If you're bringing, if you're baking some cookies or baking a cake with your kids or just baking brownies or something, consider boxing some up. I mean, we're so quick to show support to our police and our firemen, um, but not to our veterinarians. And theirs are something everyday life as well. So think about that. Think about showing a little bit of respect and a little bit of love to them as well. I will put in the show notes um, where you can get Sandy's book, Happy Vet, Happy Pet. I will also drop in the notes where every place where you can find her at. So if you want to contact her get more information about her going into working with vets, anything like that, guys, most importantly, I want you to be blessed and I want your pets to be blessed and I want you to keep chatting and I want you to go in today. I challenge you to go to your vet and say, you're doing an awesome job. Thank you. And as always, like I said, be blessed and remember keep chatting. Thank you.